today on Against the Grain. Pirates are some of the most immediately recognizable figures in popular culture, and some of the most inaccurately represented. Historian Marcus Rediger argues that the actual pirates who lived during the 17th and 18th centuries created a remarkably egalitarian world for themselves at sea, democratically electing their leaders and sharing their takings equally. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Pirates were a remarkable lot, but for reasons you're unlikely to have heard. Impoverished sailors laboring on global mercantile or naval fleets by origin, they were crucial to the circulation of goods in the emerging capitalist system. When they had the opportunity to turn pirate, they joined and built extraordinary democratic, egalitarian, and multi-ethnic floating communities. And even now, Marcus Rediger argues, they remind us of the power of maritime workers and their long tradition of fighting for a better world for themselves. Rediger is co-author with writer and illustrator David Lester of the graphic novel Under the Banner of King Death. Pirates of the Atlantic, which is published by Beacon Press. He's also the author of the groundbreaking Villains of All Nations, Atlantic Pirates in the Golden Age. Marcus, you date the Golden Age of piracy from roughly 1660 to 1730. How would you align the pirates in their Golden Age with the emergence of capitalism? Well, I'd begin, Sasha, by saying that the Atlantic is the cradle of capitalism. And in the early modern era, in the 17th and the 18th century, uh, you really have the creation of the system that is going to propel Europe to worldwide dominance. Shipping is crucial to all of this. So these pirates, uh, beginning with the buccaneers in the 1660s, continuing through the pirates of the 1690s, a second generation, and then a third generation in the 1710s and 1720s, uh, are very closely connected to the creation of empire, but also to the subversion of empire and the subversion of capitalism. In the 1660s, the uh, pirates who are preying on the Spanish main who are bringing uh, silver uh, back to Jamaica are doing so with the cooperation of the English government because they stand to gain a great deal of wealth thereby. The pirates of the 1690s, for example, uh, William Kidd, Captain Kidd, has very high-level merchants, a few of whom are members of parliament, financing his voyages. But of course, uh, when Kidd turns to uh, piracy and does a few things that his uh, patrons did not like, they throw him over the side of the vessel and he is hanged. And that is a turning point. So that by the 17-teens and 1720s, the, the wealthier element of the British Empire and the merchants who are kind of the architects of this system of Atlantic commercial capitalism are no longer part of the enterprise. Uh, the common sailors, common working ordinary sailors have got control of the sophisticated technology, the deep sea sailing ship, and they are using it to attack the commerce of the world, which is very valuable to people in London and Paris and the other centers of empire. So they're quite furious about this. Now, they had benefited from piracy in the 17th century, but by the 18th century, what those rulers wanted was a, an orderly system of commerce so that their profits could accumulate. And of course, one of the main ways in which this happens is through the establishment of the plantation system and the rise of sugar as a global commodity. Pirates were disrupting the, the normal circuits of commerce, and they were also disrupting the slave trade. Uh, pirates did attack slave ships, usually before those ships had loaded any people on board. And the reason for doing it is that uh, those kinds of vessels pirates considered very useful. 
They had a big lower deck. They had lots of food on board. They were uh, pretty uh, easy to handle. So they actually start disrupting the slave trade, which causes merchants in London to petition uh, the king for a special convoy of vessels who sail to West Africa and engage a big uh, pirate fleet captained by Bartholomew Roberts in a battle in 1722. Roberts was killed. Uh, the pirates were captured. It turns out they were too drunk to fight. Uh, so their uh, celebration of their freedom actually got in the way of defending themselves. Uh, and 52 pirates were taken ashore and hanged. This is really a turning point. But I think it's, it's really uh, quite important for people to understand that the pirates, especially in that third generation, created a crisis in the system of capitalist trade. They seized thousands of vessels. They plundered vessels. They burned vessels. They were a really uh, powerful force uh, undermining uh, the empires of the Atlantic and this new global capitalist system. And since they were doing that, uh, the ruling classes of the Atlantic uh, were determined to exterminate them. What were the lives of sailors like working on these naval fleets and making, as you say, the global capitalist economy flow? The conditions of labor were terrible, and this is uh, universally acknowledged. Uh, the common sailor on board either a naval ship or a merchant ship uh, made very low wages, and frequently the wages that he made were, were bilked. Uh, he was cheated out of his wages by captains. This happened very frequently. I've read a lot of court cases about this kind of thing. Um, there was also the issue of food, very poor quality food. Part of that is that there was no refrigeration at the time. But part of it is that the captains didn't want to spend money on quality food for the crew. So the, the sailors would complain that uh, the, the biscuit that they were supposed to eat had so many vermin in it, had so many maggots and other creatures that it could walk around the ship by itself. Um, or another thing that pirates used to say is that uh, uh, if they engaged in a mutiny, the weight of their bodies would not be enough to hang them because the, the quality of food was so poor. And then on top of both of those things, the wages and the food, there was probably the biggest issue of all to these common sailors, and that was uh, the violence of the ship captain. Captains in this period had almost unlimited power to discipline, uh, which means to flog their crew, and they used the cat of nine tails with abandon. Uh, this was something that uh, every sailor uh, had experienced. They used to call the scars on their backs uh, uh, tiger stripes. And they would actually take a certain sort of pride in their tiger stripes because that meant that they had been engaged in some kind of resistance. And these stories of resistance would circulate on the lower deck of ships all around the Atlantic. But... Uh, these were the working conditions. This is why common sailors were, were willing to turn pirate. And of course, on top of all these things, we have to add the dangers of working on a small, brittle, wooden vessel uh, in the middle of, uh, of the sea. This was a really dangerous line of work. And so consequently, uh, sailors who became pirates, they said, well, look, uh, let's, let us live while we can. Uh, maybe they'll catch us, maybe they'll hang us, but to be honest, their prospects weren't great to begin with. And early death was a very common thing among sailors. So the, these conditions I see as really as the engine, we might say, driving sailors into this other uh, way of being on the seas, uh, driving them to become pirates. What opportunities did sailors working under these terrible conditions have to liberate themselves? And, and how did those who became pirates usually do so? Well, there were three primary ways that uh, sailors became pirates. First of all, 
Uh, many sailors were working during wartime, for example, in the War of Spanish Succession from uh, 1702 to 1713. They were working as privateers. A privateer was basically a legal pirate. Uh, the king had issued what was called a letter of mark, uh, or basically giving a crew permission to attack the king's enemies during wartime. And this was actually a much better line of work than either the Navy or the merchant shipping industry. So a lot of sailors wanted to go privateering, and they did. But when the war ended in 1713, uh, a number of the ships basically said, uh, we don't do what we do according to you know, what the king says. I mean, if he says the war is over, that doesn't mean our war is over. So they kept on fighting. They kept on attacking ships, and then they began to attack English ships. And this, of course, made the authorities uh, furious. So that's one way people became pirates. A second way was by mutiny. Uh, there would be a, a core of people, uh, common sailors on board a ship uh, who had a grievance of some kind, who had been mistreated by the captain, and they plot, conspire to rise up and capture the ship, uh, frequently, they had very strong support from the entire crew. In some cases, the crew was divided, but they would capture the ship. They would usually put the captain ashore, and then they would set up as pirates. Somebody would stitch the, the black flag, the skull, and the crossbones, and off they would go as they described themselves as gentlemen of fortune. The third way people became pirates is actually the most common, and that is most people joined up with pirates uh, after having been captured aboard a prize ship. In other words, the pirates capture a vessel, uh, they go on board that vessel, and they do some very interesting things. One of the things they do is rather than just start plundering the vessel of whatever valuables they see, they stage a drama on the main deck of the ship they call the sailors up on deck, and they've got the captain, who is now uh, their prisoner. And the, the pirates, uh, standing next to the captain, say, say to the crew, Okay, men, how does this captain treat you? And if those sailors said, as quite a few sailors did, uh, our captain treats us very badly. He doesn't pay our wages. He doesn't give us decent food. He flogs us. If that happened, that captain was in a lot of trouble because pirates would act as the avengers of the common sailor. They would tie that captain up in the very place where he used to administer punishments and give him the beating of his life. And in some cases, they would actually execute the captain. They considered this a kind of summary justice. But I do want to point out that it worked the other way, too. If the crew said, our captain is a decent man, the pirates would probably give him his ship back. And in some cases, I, I found evidence that they would give him money. And it was one pirate crew who said, take this money back to London and tell all the merchants there, look what happens when a captain treats his crew well. So, so these are the three main ways people became pirates. And, and then let me just add, if you criticized your captain uh, in front of the pirates, you had better go with the pirates when they leave that vessel because the captain would take uh, vengeance on your back with uh, the cat of nine tails. But this proved to be a very effective recruiting technique. Very significant portion of captured sailors on captured vessels would go uh, with the pirates. So, so these are the three main ways that people became pirates. I'm speaking with historian Marcus Redeker. He's co-author with David Lester of the graphic novel Under the Banner of King Death, Pirates of the Atlantic, which is published by Beacon Press, and you can find a link to it at againstthegrain.org. You've been describing the, the people who would become pirates in this period, the golden age of piracy, from 1660 to 1730, more or less. I wanted to ask you about those who are not men. Well, we, we know that there were women pirates. We, we don't know how many. Uh, there are two very famous women pirates, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. 
and I'd like to tell you their stories. But, but before I do, let me say that one of the big discoveries of maritime history over the past 20 years or so has been to learn that a very large number of women dressed as men and went to sea. Uh, there have been several studies of this. It, it's actually uh, quite common. And there are also a lot of popular ballads about women who went to sea or maybe joined the army. So we, we don't know the extent of women's participation, but we do know that uh, two women pirates in particular were extremely famous in the Golden Age. Uh, one was a woman named Mary Reed. Mary was uh, someone who had dressed as a man and gone to fight in the wars of Europe during the uh, War of Spanish Succession. Uh, after the uh, war, she uh, signed aboard a ship, and that ship was captured by pirates, uh, Captain uh, Calico Jack Rackham. So she went aboard the pirate ship and she became a, a, a fully-fledged member of that crew. Um, it turns out there was another woman pirate on the same ship, uh, as chances might have it. This was a woman named Anne Bonny. Anne Bonny was the illegitimate daughter of a fairly well-to-do merchant. Uh, it seems that he lived in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. She didn't really want his fortune, apparently. So she, uh, she fell in love with a sailor and ran away with him to the Bahama Islands, which at that time was a pirate haunt. Uh, then she fell in love with Calico Jack. And dressed as a man, she went aboard his, his uh, ship. So Anne Bonny and Mary Reed meet each other, and neither of them knows that the other one is a woman. And there's, there's an interesting suggestion that they uh, had a relationship that was quite close. Um, but they did eventually discover each other's secrets, and, uh, and they became... Uh, and, then, and then after that happened, they both, we might say, came out. In other words, they had already won the respect of their shipmates, they basically, at sort of a meeting of the Common Council, said, okay, uh, we're women, we're going we're gonna to dress however we want from now on, uh, and uh, if anybody has a problem with it, uh, let's fight it out. And both these women were very, very tough uh, people. Uh, Anne Bonny had uh, beaten a would-be rapist uh, into a bloody pulp earlier in her life, uh, Mary Reed was very, very knowledgeable about guns and fighting. She had this uh, army experience. Um, and I'll, I'll, I will tell you one story about Mary Reed, which I think reveals her character. She ended up falling in love with another pirate, uh, a male pirate. And that pirate got into a scrap with another pirate whom Mary thought was much tougher than uh, her lover. And that pirate challenged her lover to a duel. Pirates would do this. They didn't fight on board the ship. They'd go ashore and they would fight uh, with sword and pistol, as they called it. So Mary is beside herself. She's absolutely sure that this other pirate is going to kill her sweetheart. So what does she do? She picks a fight with that same rugged pirate and challenges him to a duel one hour before the duel was to take place with her lover. She went ashore, she fought the duel, she killed him on the spot, and she saved her uh, lover's life. Uh, so Mary Reed was a tough character. And then one story about Anne Bonny. When uh, Anne and Mary were, were on Calico Jack's ship, there was quite a bit of drinking going on. They were sort of in a uh, sort of a foggy sea one day. Um, a lot of the men were drunk, and then suddenly, uh, appearing through the mist, was a British naval vessel, and they were pretty close quarters, so it was time to start firing the cannon. But several of the men, including Calico Jack, became fearful and went down into the hold of the vessel. Uh, Anne and Mary and one male pirate uh, fired the cannon as best they could, but eventually they were taken. They uh, went to back to Jamaica, where they were tried, and they were all sentenced to death. 
Mary and Anne had their executions reprieved because they were both pregnant. And uh, under British law, pregnant women were not to be executed. So when the time came for the execution of the rest of the crew, including Calico Jack, uh, Anne and Mary are brought to witness the hanging. And Calico Jack, with a rope around his neck, uh, looks over at uh, his sweetheart, Anne Bonnie, and gives her kind of an imploring look. And the, uh, what her response was recorded as this. She said, Jack, don't look at me like that. Because if you had fought like a man, you wouldn't now be hanged like a dog. So, so that that's Anne Bonny. Uh, Anne and Mary were very tough characters. Mary died in jail in Jamaica. Uh, Anne Bonny got out, and we're still not quite sure what happened to her. But the point is that women too could find liberty under the Jolly Roger. And this was a very uh, free sexual environment. Uh, as uh, as it was free in so many other ways. Well, let's talk about some of those other ways. How did pirates tend to organize themselves on their boats? Well, this, I think, is the greatest proof that, uh, th that you had common sailors doing something very different and you know, wanting to live their lives in a different way. And, and this, to me, was the sort of proof uh, when pirates finally had the power, these common sailors, when they finally had the power to organize them ships, their ships themselves, what did they do? Did they recreate the power structure and uh, the work life of the ships they had all worked on, on naval vessels, on merchant vessels? Did they create the concentrated authority of the captain, which is the system they had known? Did they recreate a system of violent punishment? And the answer to all these questions is no. One of the first things pirates did was they elected their captain. Now, you couldn't elect just anybody. You had to elect someone who had the skills of navigation. But they elected the captain, and basically they had the power to depose the captain if he should overstep his authority. So first and foremost, uh, pirates were very democratic in a period when poor people had uh, no democratic rights anywhere. I think this is a very important point. The second thing they did, which was quite innovative, they created a new position uh, on board the pirate ship. They called it the quartermaster. Now, the quartermaster on a merchant ship would simply be a sort of um, knowledgeable sailor who who really knew the ways of the ship and the ways of the sea and could be counted on to do a few extra things. He might get an extra shilling or two. But that position took on a very different meaning among pirates because the quartermaster was basically the tribune of the people. The quartermaster was elected specifically to represent the interests of the crew against a captain whom they did not trust. Now, they had elected him, and they could depose him, but they still wanted this kind of dual executive that would allow the, the quartermaster to, to stand up for them. Uh, the quartermaster was also the person who would divide up the loot that they had taken, and to do so in a shockingly egalitarian way. Pirates would divide up their loot uh, and give the captain... You know, that everybody on the, on the vessel would get a share, one share, and then the captain might get a share and a half. Uh, the carpenter might get a share and a quarter. Uh, the quartermaster might get a share and a half. But if you look at this compared to the pay structures on merchant and naval vessels, this is a radical leveling of the division of labor in which everybody basically gets the same thing. So there's this principle of equality built into how pirates rewarded themselves uh, after they captured a prize ship. So democracy and equality both characterize the uh, pirate ships of the day, and nothing could be uh, further from the worlds in which they came, the worlds of other kinds of sailing ships. So they, they ran these ships, these pirate ships, in a very subversive way. And everybody knew that uh, you know, that this was an implicit critique of the way ships were normally run. 
This is a, this is a very important thing. And of course, it helped with recruiting because the people who were thinking about joining the pirate ship would ask questions about this. Who gets all the loot? And they say, we divide it up very equally. And lots of people said, okay, I'm with you. I've never known something like that. So, so these are some of the things that uh, the pirates are doing in their self-organization. And, and, you know, to be honest, uh, Sasha, I think of this as something like uh, the taking over of a factory by workers, where things will run in a different way. Uh, the ship was in many ways a factory. It was organized cooperation. A ship was kind of like a machine. Organized cooperation of waged workers uh, whose, whose work had to be synchronized and all the rest. And, of course, the pirates felt that they did not need those merchant or naval captains to run the ships. Um, they felt like they could do it on their own, and they could do it on their own. They did do it on their own. So capturing this very sophisticated piece of technology and organizing it in a new way is one of the things that made pirates uh, very meaningful to working people around the world. Do you think that this kind of radical egalitarianism, especially for that time, what you and David Lester in the book Under the Banner of King Death refer to as a wooden world turned upside down, right? That those who were on top are no longer on top and those from the bottom are now on top. Um, did this emerge, do you think, spontaneously out of the world of these sailors? Do you see deeper roots that we could trace to those radical impulses? I think there are uh, political roots that actually go back to the English Revolution. Uh, this idea of the world turned upside down is a, is a biblical phrase and one that was very prominent uh, during the English Revolution when the levelers and diggers and seekers and ranters and Quakers wanted to uh, pose their own solutions to the problems of the day, poverty, um, the condition of women. There were a lot of people who criticized the institution of marriage, uh, returning the commons to those who had been uh, swept off of it. So, so there is definitely a, a linkage that goes back to the middle of the 17th century, and, and we can see that in some of the things that pirates did. But I think even more important than that is actually the experience of work on these naval and merchant vessels, the kind of cooperation that, that brought people together on these vessels, there was formed a, what I call a culture of opposition in which common sailors uh, tended to unite against uh, the captains and the officers of these vessels and certainly against the merchants who employed them. Uh, and they had common core values. And, and I've identified these common values as uh, collectivism, uh, that Sailors always had better life chances if they stuck together. Uh, Anti-authoritarianism, meaning they, they really did fight back against constituted authority. And, and thirdly, uh, egalitarianism, because equality, the equal division of resources, made it more likely that more people would survive. So in my view, those values within that culture of opposition are in the lower deck of practically every ship in this period, but they don't have the opportunity to be expressed openly until pirates began to take over ships. And so consequently, what we see on the pirate ship is the culture of the common sailor being institutionalized uh, in a new way. And, and a lot of these things are uh, practical ideas. You know, equality is a practical idea. It's, it's not just an ideological notion. It's that we will survive if we stick together and do things equally. And I think that's what we see uh, emerging from the uh, self-organization of the pirate ships. I'm speaking with Marcus Rediger. He's Distinguished Professor of Atlantic History at the University of Pittsburgh. He's the co-author with David Lester of the graphic novel Under the Banner of King Death, Pirates of the Atlantic. His many other books include Villains of All Nations, 
and the fearless Benjamin Lay. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You touched on this earlier, Marcus, but I wonder if you could talk about pirates and the slave trade. Now, obviously, the relationship of pirates to the slave trade dates back for centuries, but in the period that we're talking about, the period of the late 1600s and early 1700s, how should we think about the relationship between the slave trade and pirates? Well, I should say that, you know, pirates uh, were not a monolithic thing. In other words, there were some pirates, especially those in the Indian Ocean, uh, some of them based in Madagascar beginning in the 1690s, uh, who engaged in the slave trade. So we, we won't make sweeping judgments about this, but most of the pirates in the Atlantic uh, did not engage in the slave trade and actually seem to have been quite hostile to it. One of the things that really made a tremendous impression uh, as I was studying the social composition of pirate ships uh, for this book, Villains of All Nations, was to see that such a large percentage of the pirates were people of African descent. Now, where did those people come from? Uh, a lot of them are deserters of the plantation system, uh, runaways. Uh, there are also uh, quite a few black sailors in this time period, so they too would join up from captured ships. So this, to me, was a, was a very powerful sign. And, and I've had a lot of people say, well, why would pirates want to let these people on board their ship? Didn't they have the you know, racial prejudices that would necessarily accompany the slave trade? Well, my answer to that question is pirates were looking for people who would be loyal to the crew. And I can promise you, you would not find a more loyal crew member than uh, someone who is a fugitive from the slave system. The second point is that pirates wanted people who knew how to fight. And one of the things that has become clear in the study of Atlantic slavery uh, in recent years is that quite a lot of the Africans who were brought across the Atlantic in the slave trade actually had military training back in West or West Central Africa and that military training, by the way, is one of the reasons why the Haitian Revolution was successful, that quite a number of the people in Toussaint Louverture's army were trained soldiers. So pirates also wanted uh, people who knew how to fight. And I did notice that in a lot of cases, uh, there were black sailors among the black pirates among the boarding parties. In other words, the, the boat that is sent over to capture a vessel, after a, a prize vessel has surrendered, there were a very significant number of black pirates involved in all that. Uh, so that shows that they had a level of trust and that they had a level of leadership. So that's the internal thing. I already made reference to the fact that pirates were disrupting the slave trade by capturing slaving vessels before they reached the African coast and loaded enslaved people on board. Uh, and these were very uh, uh, well-stocked and expensive vessels that they would capture. Uh, Edward Teach, the famous Blackbeard, uh, his vessel, the Queen Anne's Revenge, had been a, a slave ship. Uh, and that was true for actually uh, quite a number of other captains. Bartholomew Roberts, probably the most successful figure in this, had former slave ships in his uh Convoy. Uh, he himself was uh, had captured a Dutch man of war with forty four cannons. So that was that was kind of the flagship of his crew. But but Roberts captured hundreds of vessels, and a lot of them were vessels involved in the slave trade. So uh, again, this is one of the main reasons why the British government uh, sent a. a a special flotilla of naval vessels after Roberts in 1722, where they engaged him in battle, uh, killed him, and hanged a large number of his crew members. And I'd like to ask you in a moment about the significance of, of that, um, of the defeat of Bartholomew Roberts and his crew. But um, under the banner of King Death, this graphic novel that you've co-written with David Lester, it tells the tale of a formerly enslaved 
man called John Gwynne. I wonder if you could tell us his story and what it illuminates precisely about these questions that you're describing of the world of the pirates, their role in the disruption of the slave trade, and the way they speak to us from centuries ago. Yes, uh, John Gwynne uh, is a, a fictional character, but one that's based on a number of different black pirates that I encountered in the course of my research. Uh, he is, uh, in the graphic novel, someone who escaped slavery in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, he got on board a pirate ship uh, headed by a man named Steed Bonnet, a pirate captain who was hanged in Charleston in 1719. Uh, as human property, uh, John Gwynne was not hanged, but rather uh, returned to his enslaver. And he managed to escape again, went to sea, and so he is actually uh, uh, working as a sailor in New York when our graphic novel begins, working with a man named uh, Ruby Decker, a Dutch sailor. Uh, they end up getting shanghaied, you might say, on board a slaving vessel. And this was very common in those days. Uh, uh, there are these people called crimps who would get sailors drunk and basically sell them to outward bound slaving vessels. So John Gwynne finds himself on board a slave ship and uh, he and Reuben Decker uh, uh, basically in, over a long period of time experience the violence of that trade uh, and, and, and eventually organize a mutiny. So to me, what John Gwynne represents is a, a significant part of what I call the Motley Crew, the multi-ethnic, multi-racial labor force that could be found on every ship, could be found in every port city, uh, a really fascinating social formation, uh, and one that exercised quite a bit of agency uh, in making history. This was a theme in uh, a book that Peter Linebaugh and I wrote called The Many-Headed Hydra. You've talked about in the latter part of the golden age of piracy that the British were determined and through enormous you know, military might behind uh, crushing the pirates. I want to ask you about that, but I first wonder if you could describe the cost of piracy as much as it can be determined to the British. These, these sailing ships were uh, expensive propositions. Uh, their cargo, I mean, they were, they were basically filled with the wealth of the world. Uh, and when pirates captured these vessels, when they converted them to their own purposes, when they plundered them of their goods, they created all kinds of economic problems. Uh, I, you can actually see that the, the, the effect in insurance rates, insurance rates, maritime insurance rates go sky high during the period of the 17-teens and 1720s because there is so much danger. So basically, you know, my argument is that they disrupted uh, the usual circuits of accumulation and they cost merchants of this world around the Atlantic a great deal of money. It's impossible to quantify it, but uh, but we know that these merchants were suffering from these actions because they say so in their correspondence, in their petitions to government, in the colonial newspapers. Uh, these pirates are kind of their worst nightmare. Historian Marcus Rediger is my guest. We're talking about the egalitarian world of the pirates, which Marcus writes about with his co-author, David Lester in the graphic novel Under the Banner of King Death, Pirates of the Atlantic. So Marcus, how would you then describe the campaign by the British and other elites to stamp out the pirates? Well, this is something we treat in the graphic novel. It is a, it is a campaign to hang as many pirates as possible. This is actually a very clear case of state terrorism. They, they literally want to terrorize the seafaring population. And look, this is not my inference, Sasha. They say, point blank, we're going to hang these pirates as a warning to other sailors so that they will not follow 
in this path. So every time a pirate crew was captured, there would be a big show trial in whatever port city it was, whether it's Kingston, Jamaica, or Charleston, New York, Philadelphia, Boston. There would be a big show trial. The pirates, of course, the, there was no doubt that they were going to be convicted and hanged. They really couldn't even represent themselves uh, properly in the court of law. And then when the day came for the hanging, there was a massive turnout for these uh, hangings of pirates. This was a, a major popular event. And on the gallows itself, there was always a great deal of drama because it was expected in this day and age that uh, someone who was about to be executed would be penitent, would confess on the gallows, would basically express their remorse, would ask uh, God and the magistrates for forgiveness. But, and a few pirates did that, but the vast majority of them did not. And in fact, they used the gallows as one last place to denounce the injustices that drove them into piracy in the first place. There's a, a powerful instance of a man named John Fly, who was kind of our model for a hanging scene in the beginning of Under the Banner of King Death. And from the gallows, basically, with the, with the noose around his neck, uh, William Fly says, uh, treat your sailors better, you captains out there, because we, we, we can't have justice done us. Uh, you beat us. You feed us terrible food. No wonder we turn pirate. But of course, after the hanging, the drama wasn't over because what the uh, ruling classes of the Atlantic wanted was to maximize the, the social meaning of this execution. So they would take the bodies of the pirates and hang them in chains at the entrance of the harbor. And there the bodies would decompose, uh, uh, crows would peck out the eyeballs, uh, the bodies would slowly deteriorate under the action of wind and sun. But every time a ship sailed into that harbor, the sailors on board would see a message which basically says, we will do this to you if you dare to oppose us in the way these pirates did. So. Uh, many hundreds of pirates were hanged like this. I mean, it was really a, a desire to annihilate the pirates. But the truth is that even on the gallows, the pirates were defiant. They would say things like, uh, curse the king and all, all the higher powers. Uh, one man said, uh, do I repent? Yes, I repent that I didn't do more damage to all of you rich people and you merchants. I wish I'd started as a pirate much sooner. So they had this kind of defiant way, and they also had gallows humor. Pirates were surprisingly funny, Sasha. They, they had a sense of humor about this. They used to say, uh, a merry life and a short one, meaning uh, we're going to live as well as we can. They're probably going to catch us. They're probably going to hang us, but we're going to have a hell of a good time until then. What would you say is the significance of the defeat of the pirates, including people like Captain Bartholomew Roberts, who you described as, as disrupting the slave trade? What is the significance of their defeats for the slave trade and for capitalism in the early 1700s? Well, I think it's, it's a, the, the effect is enormous. I mean, basically... Uh, a major obstacle to the development of capitalism has been removed. Because after 1722, what happens is that there's kind of a, a, a decline in a more sporadic uh, number of instances of piracy. But basically, it's going to die out pretty completely by 1726, at which time all of these circuits of capitalist trade are now protected. Uh, navies of the world are back in charge. Uh, sailors and their descent have been forced back under deck, lower deck, uh, under conditions of great repression. And I see this as a, as a very big part of the growth of this capitalist system, including uh, the slave trade and slavery, because it's, it's soon after the War of Spanish Succession that the British get the right 
it's called the Asiento, to conduct the slave trade to uh, Spanish America. So the British slave trade is expanding dramatically in exactly this period. In fact, you could argue that the takeoff of the slave trade is in the period, uh, the very period after piracy is suppressed. That's when free traders swarm into the west coast of Africa and began to deliver vastly greater numbers of uh, enslaved people to the plantation economies of the New World. Marcus Rediger, what would you say is the relevance of the story of pirates today who could easily be seen as, of course, Hollywood sees them as flamboyant and cartoonish figures from an age far, far behind us? Well, I think uh, one, of, one of the most important findings of my work, Sasha, is that pirates are much more interesting as real people than is the Hollywood mythology. Uh, because there we see people with bad hair and bad teeth doing sort of ridiculous things. Uh, but it turns out that pirates were pretty much ordinary working people. And the way in which I came to do this uh, history from below was to pose the question, uh, who were these pirates, what were they doing, and why were they doing it? Basic questions. Once you ask that question, then you start to see that there's this very powerful social world uh, of piracy. And I think even though the Hollywood mythology is great, the distortion of the history of piracy is quite severe. It's nonetheless true that people still can recognize pirates as rebels. They see them as people who went up against the most powerful people in the world. Uh, and, and I think that is one of the reasons why pirates have remained uh, a kind of cultural icon. Uh, you know, if, if I've learned anything, I mean, I published an article about pirates in 1981, and, and literally the phone has never stopped ringing from novelists and filmmakers and playwrights. I mean, everybody is interested in pirates. They're fascinated in pirates. They don't know exactly why, but they sense that there is this deeper meaning somehow that is linked to these issues that actually turn out to be an important part of the history. Uh, democracy, equality, self-organization, fighting back against arbitrary and oppressive authority. Uh, pirates are outlaws, and uh, a lot of people around the world love outlaws. I'd like to end with a question that I guess projects forward from the age of piracy to our present. When one looks at the history of the workers' movement and the history of the left, those who labor on ships and on the docks have often played an outsized and militant role in that history. Do you think that that is something that's inherent to, to the work, to the situation maritime workers find themselves in? They tend to be cosmopolitan and, of course, often play or, or do play a crucial role at some of the choke points of capitalist trade? Or could it also be tied to an egalitarian tradition of sailors that, you know, dates back at least to the pirates? I love that question, Sasha, and, and I love it primarily because when I first started working on sailors 40-plus uh, years ago, most people didn't even consider them part of the working class. They weren't really considered to be part of labor history because they didn't make commodities, right? At that time, workers were defined by their ability to make industrial commodities. Uh, but I couldn't agree more. Sailors have played a tremendously outsized role in labor history. We're, we're just beginning to understand that. Sailors and dock workers and the motley crews of the port cities. And I do think that there, are, uh, there is a tradition of maritime radicalism that spans a very long uh, period of time. I think that is, is there. Actually, we're going to have a, uh, a conference this uh, September in Amsterdam on the history of maritime solidarity that will link mutiny, piracy, and other things up to migrant solidarity movements today to flesh out those connections, which I think are very interesting. But I also do think that part of the reason why they play this outsized role is uh, structural. 
shall we say, that these, these sailors and dock workers and port city workers have a strategic position in the global division of labor. They are where all kinds of peoples and ideas meet. And they are therefore in a position to know about things happening in other parts of the world. They're in a position to connect different sorts of struggles. Uh, I think that's a, a really important thing. And I would just give as an example this, uh, this wonderful book by Julia Scott called The Common Wind, which is all about how the motley crew, and especially black sailors, spread the word of the Haitian Revolution in the 1790s, something that could not be controlled by elites. So there's a kind of history from below of these people uh, intensifying the struggles, uh, being vectors of information and knowledge, and thereby having a tremendous impact on the way these uh, historical events turn out. Marcus Rediger, it's been a pleasure having you back on. Always good to be with you, Sasha. Thank you. Marcus Rediger is Distinguished Professor of Atlantic History at the University of Pittsburgh. His many books include Villains of All Nations, Atlantic Pirates in the Golden Age, and most recently with David Lester, the graphic novel Under the Banner of King Death, Pirates of the Atlantic. You can find a link to that book at againstthegrain.org. Uh, he's also the author of The Fearless Benjamin Lay and co-author of a play with Naomi Wallace, which will premiere in London in June called The Return of Benjamin Lay. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.